Hello and welcome to Z3 News. I'm James Bailey and today is Monday, May 18th, 2020. And today I'm continuing along the lines of the programs I shared last week. And this is part of a new series that I started based on a prompting I received on Sunday, May the 10th, where I believe God put it in my heart to start sharing news items. And I am going to do that. That's what I'm working toward. But I wanted to start by sharing a scriptural foundation for what I believe, because otherwise I think my views are going to sound like nonsense to uh, a lot of people. But I believe the scriptures are our most reliable, most trustworthy source of information. And what's amazing to me is that the scriptures provide us with all the answers we need to understand what's happening in the world today and what's coming in the future. It really is amazing if we just take the time to study what it's saying. It gives us all the information we need, yet so many of us have spent our time uh, listening to other sources, and we haven't had to try very hard because the whole world is bombarding us with other narratives, false narratives that contradict the scriptural perspective. And there's, as a result, there's a lot of confusion. We've been bombarded in our schools. Our uh, teachings from history textbooks um, have omitted the reasons behind historical events. So when it's presented to us, we just get this series of events and dates and names, and uh, there's no real ability. We, we don't connect the dots because the key pieces of information were removed. God has been removed, and he is the key piece of information that we need to understand these things. So in the previous programs, I've been sharing from the scriptures, starting with Daniel chapter 2, regarding Nebuchadnezzar's dream about seeing a great statue that, that showed uh, different sections of the statue were revealing different kingdoms to come upon the earth, starting with his own kingdom, and then ending, there was a total of four kingdoms, and it ends with uh, the legs made of iron and the feet made of clay and iron mixed in. And what's so amazing about that dream, that vision, and that picture that it portrays of the, the legs of iron and then the feet of iron and clay, is it completely uh, illustrates what has been happening in the world for the past 2,700 years. And so I'm going to start shifting the focus just a little bit. I still have more scriptures to share, uh, but I want to start shifting the focus to show how the events from history uh, in the past few hundred years especially have exactly aligned with what Nebuchadnezzar saw and that transition from the legs of iron to the uh, feet of clay with iron mixed in. It's really amazing when you start seeing it in history and then it really um, sets the stage for us to understand where we are and who is truly behind the events that are happening in the world today. It's so, so vitally important for us to get that perspective, both from the scriptures and from history. But then I also shared from Daniel chapter 9, because that also reveals Rome 
is the empire that will be behind the Antichrist at the time of the end. And I explained that in a previous program as well. And then I also went into uh, Revelation chapter 13 to show that the one who uh, comes as the second beast, who comes as a lamb, perfectly fits the description of the Roman Catholic Pope. And I'm going to be sharing more scriptures along that line uh, to show the connection between uh, the Roman Catholic Church and Mystery Babylon as it's described in the scriptures. It's also called the mother of all harlots. Now when it comes to history, I do not like taking anyone else's word for it. As soon as someone makes a claim, I want to know, where did you get that from? And I look for the source. And I like to find sources that are as close as possible to the time of the actual event. Preferably they were there as a first-hand eyewitness, if possible. So it's great to base um, our beliefs on the scriptures, but when it comes to history, I really want hard, factual evidence to know what I'm talking about. And so for the past several days, I have been digging and digging and digging, and I am really so excited about what I've found because it is clearly uh, the start, uh, that transition period, maybe you call it the ankles of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw because we, uh, the world, went through a major uh, shifting, a major transformation um, when we uh, changed over from the legs to the feet. And that happened a couple of hundred years ago. And I'm going to go back, uh, I'm going to take some time to explain that because when you can see that from uh, historical facts, and thank God there's enough hard facts that we can know without a doubt I don't have to have any doubt about it as to what happened, uh, who was behind it, who came out of it on top, and, uh, and how the world uh, was dramatically uh, changed ever since. And it's really uh, something every, everyone needs to understand. But sad to say, I mean, these are events that I was taught in school. I was required to read books about them. Never had the slightest idea what any of it meant. And it's not a coincidence because you can go back and find historical evidence that different uh, organizations have made a concerted effort to rewrite the events of history, to omit the crimes committed by the, the culprits, the true culprits behind these things, so that we never, ever hear about it. And then when we finally do hear about it, it sounds so bizarre, so way out there. <laughs> and it's because we've lived our whole life uh, in deception. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing, especially when you've lived as long as I have, to think, good grief, I've been believing this false narrative my whole life. So I'm very eager to share what I've discovered regarding this major shift that occurred and I was planning originally to share that today, but it occurred to me that just as historians have omitted the, the truth about that shift, they have also misled us about another shift that has supposedly happened in the Roman kingdom that never did happen. 
So we've been misled on both counts, and I think it's important to uh, lay the groundwork to go back and establish the truth about that uh, first major uh, shift that never did happen. And then on tomorrow's program, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to go into the details about the shift that we were never told about that did happen. (laughs) What a mess. Anyway, but you know, we don't need to spend forever studying the history of Rome, but we do need to have at least a basic understanding of the facts of history because this kingdom, we need to understand who this is that we're dealing with and who this is that's ruling over planet Earth. It's a major important thing because if we can understand what's operating, then we can understand and believe what's happening today because otherwise it can be very difficult for the sheep to believe that the wolves could be so evil because sheep are not used to thinking like wolves. And so I think it's really important that we understand the nature of this kingdom that they have demonstrated through all of their 2,700 years of existence. Now, the popular narrative about the Roman Empire, which I'm calling the Roman Kingdom to kind of cover all the different spans of it, but the popular narrative has been that they were a pagan empire, but in the 4th century A.D., they converted to Christianity, and they've been a Christian empire ever since. Well, that uh, narrative is easily proven false by the facts of history, and it's really even comical to the point of absurdity that they continue to make the claim because all the facts of history uh, centering around that period of the 4th century all disprove that it ever even happened. It all goes back to Emperor Constantine in the 4th century and his supposed uh, conversion to Christianity. Constantine became emperor in the year 306. At that time, the kingdom was divided into four parts. So he initially was just emperor over one of those parts. He later, through military conquests, unified the kingdom. But at that time, the Roman kingdom had been in existence for about a thousand years. And in all that time, they were unquestionably devoted to this, what they called the pantheon of Roman gods. And this included gods like Jupiter, Mars, Mercury, Saturn, Venus, Apollo, Diana, Mithras, and many others. They had constructed temples to these gods throughout their kingdom, and they had people who acted as oracles to speak in behalf of their gods so that when they had important decisions to make, they went to the oracle and they would perform these ceremonies where they would uh, sacrifice an animal and spread out the the insides of the animal, and uh, supposedly the oracle could read uh, the entrails to determine uh, the direction that the uh, Roman emperors needed to take. 
Now, by the time Constantine came to power, Rome had been consistently persecuting the Jews for hundreds of years, and in more recent times, uh, the past 300 years, they had been persecuting the Christians right alongside of the Jews. It was the Roman armies in 70 AD that surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and the city and killed over one million Jewish people, and they captured another 100,000 and took them back to Rome to be sold into slavery. And that's the event that I mentioned in a previous program that's recorded in Daniel chapter 9 as a prophetic event that was to come, but was later fulfilled over a period of a few years from 66 to 73 AD. And that was not an isolated event. It was part of an ongoing pattern of persecution that continued relentlessly, emperor after emperor. But despite all their severe persecution and execution of Christians, their strategy was failing to work, and the spread of Christianity just continued stronger and stronger until by the time Constantine came to power, there were Christians at every level of Roman society and at and every kind of occupation. For example, in the Roman military in the year 286, there was an entire legion of Roman soldiers who were all Christians, and this legion consisted of 6,666 men. It's called the Theban Legion because all the men in that legion had been raised in a city called Thebius. And at that time, the emperor, Maximian, ordered them to march to Gaul, which would be modern-day France, to assist them in a war against the people of Burgundy. And they were loyal to the emperor's orders until he ordered the whole legion to participate in a sacrifice to the pagan gods and also to take an oath of allegiance in which they were required to swear their assistance in exterminating all the Christians living in Gaul. And so these soldiers were horrified by their orders and they had no choice as Christians, but to refuse to do as ordered. And the emperor was, of course, uh, infuriated by their refusal to obey his orders, and so they had a standoff, and the emperor ultimately ordered one-tenth of them to be put to death by the sword, hoping that the other 90% would reconsider and follow his commands but they killed, it's called decimating, they killed one-tenth of them by the sword and the other 90% held firm. So he ordered a second time to kill another 10%. And again, the survivors all stood firm, refused to compromise. And so this really infuriated the emperor and he ordered his other legions to just execute the entire Theban legion and they were all put to death by the sword. Now, that event just illustrates the, the climate 
of Rome at the time that Constantine took power in 306. So that was just 30 years before he took power. The Christian influence had become a major problem for Rome. There were Christians in business who were prospering. There were Christians in government positions. So this issue of the Christians was threatening to divide the entire empire. And so Rome did what they always do. They consulted the oracle of their pagan gods. And the emperor, one of the emperors that ruled right before Constantine, was named Diocletian. And when Diocletian went to the oracle of Apollo, the oracle told him that they were unable to receive clear instructions from the gods because uh, their connection was being hindered by the presence of these Christians who were described by the oracle as the impious on the earth. So in the year 303, Diocletian issued what's called the Edict Against the Christians, in which he ordered the destruction of the Christian scriptures, Christian places of worship. He prohibited Christians from assembling together to worship. He had many Christians arrested and put in prison. He had many of their homes set on fire with them inside so that many families just perished in the fire. He had others taken out to sea and had stones tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Others were strung up and suspended over flames until they boiled to death. And all these events are recorded in great detail in Fox's Book of the Martyrs. And there he says it's impossible to ascertain the numbers martyred or to enumerate the various modes of martyrdom. Racks, scourges, swords, daggers, crosses, poison, famine were made use of in various parts to dispatch the Christians. And invention was exhausted to devise tortures against such as had no crime. Now by the time Diocletian issued the edict against the Christians, the Roman Empire had already been divided ten years prior. And he's the one who had issued the order. And so Rome was divided in more ways than one, geographically as well as religiously. So that's the environment that Constantine grew up under. And he grew up trained as a soldier fighting in the armies of Rome. And as a good soldier, he understood the importance of having his men behind him together in agreement. So he was a first-hand eyewitness to the challenges that were faced by the empire over this issue. So then in the year 306, at the age of 34, Constantine became emperor over one of the four Roman kingdoms. And five years later, he saw one of the other emperors, Galerius, admit publicly that his attempts to stop the Christians through persecution was a dismal failure. And so that was in the year 311. And in that same year, Galerius, after having many Christians put to death, he was struck down with an illness that was described as a very painful illness. 
And he was in such pain that he even called on the Christians to please pray for him. But he died of his sickness after just six days. And it was the next year in 312 that Constantine was engaged in a battle against one of the other Roman emperors, Maxentius, and it's called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And it was during that battle that Constantine, many years later, 13 years later, claimed that he had had a vision. And in the vision, he claims he saw a cross up in the sky, and he heard God say, In this sign you shall conquer. Now, there's some very big problems with his testimony, because first of all, no one had ever heard a single word about it until 13 years later. In the year 325, Constantine was facing many challenges of trying to keep control over this Christian influence that was growing stronger and stronger. And so in that year, he, he sent out word, an invitation to 1,800 leaders of Christian churches who were called bishops. And 300 of them accepted his invitation and made the trip to Rome and met with him where he attempted to take control over the Christian world, putting himself at the head of it. Now, I think it's very odd that at this time, when he's trying to present himself as a candidate to be the leader of all the Christian churches, that at that very time, right prior to that uh, council meeting, he comes up with this testimony that he has his scribe record for him, a man named Eusebius. So it was clearly to Constantine's advantage at that time to come up with a testimony to claim that he also was a Christian that would then qualify him to be the leader over all the other Christians. So that's point number one that I think is a glaringly big problem for his testimony. But the second thing is his own testimony, which he had carved in stone, telling the stories of his conquests some three years after his supposed conversion in 312. In the year 315, he had constructed what was called the Arch of Constantine. And this arch has carved into it the stories of his military victories. And what's really interesting about the arch is that it has not one single reference to any kind of Christian symbol. There are no crosses found anywhere in any of the statues. Yet he claims to have had this dramatic conversion in which he was told, in this sign you will conquer. So if the sign of the cross was the key to his military victories, why, in his own testimony, would he omit it and any reference to it while including references to his pagan gods? Right on top of the arch was the god Apollo. And carved into other parts of the arch were references giving honor to other pagan gods. So all throughout the arch, we see him giving honor to his pagan gods while making not one single mention of anything Christian. Now that arch still stands today in Rome. It's near the Colosseum, 
And so to this very day, his own testimony, which is carved into that stone, testifies against him as being a true convert to Christianity. And so that's the second reason why I do not believe his conversion ever happened. But there's a lot more evidence, because well into the later years of his life, in the year 330, five years after the Council of Nicaea, he has another monument constructed to honor the god Apollo. It's called the Column of Constantine, and at the top of it stands Apollo. But instead of Apollo's face, he puts his own face on the statue. Now, at the base of that column, there was a little storage compartment, and in there he had a wooden statue of the pagan goddess Pallas Athena. And along with that little statue, he had some Christian relics, such as little wooden pieces that were supposedly pieces of the cross. So there you have a great example. Near the end of his life, he's still giving honor uh, to the pagan gods, and he's just added this uh, Christian relic in the mix, as if uh, it's just a way of covering the bases to include all the gods. And, you know, as the Romans had this pantheon of gods, they were very uh, used to having lots of gods. So why not just add one more god to the mix, and that way you've got them all covered, right? I mean, that's what it looks like Constantine did. There's, there's no evidence of a genuine conversion where, a, you know, Christians don't build monuments to pagan gods. Christians don't just add their god to the mix of their other existing gods. Christians receive the one true God and center their whole life around a personal relationship with him. There's no room to have all those other gods if there's a true conversion. And that brings me to my last point of concern about Constantine's testimony, is that he doesn't mention any conversion of the inner man he doesn't mention any kind of relationship, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, he never even mentions the name of Jesus Christ. All he said was, in this supposed vision, is that in this sign you will conquer. And this is exactly the kind of thing that was popular throughout the pagan culture. They were superstitious. They believed in the power of objects, the power of relics, to deliver them and give them some kind of supernatural favor, and it's idolatry. They, what he did was he made Christianity into a form of idolatry. He actually perverted the meaning of the cross as if it's some kind of a, a relic that would give him power, almost like in the Lord of the Rings movie, whoever possesses the ring has this great power. And that's how it is in Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon is always focused on the visible realm because they cannot see the invisible realm. And that's why they have all these pagan gods that are connected to things in the visible realm. It's either the sun or the moon or the planets or the stars or something in the physical realm because that's that's where they focus their attention. And just think about what a joke it was for him to convene this council of Nicaea. 
I mean, he sent out the invitation to 1,800 bishops, and less than 20% of them showed up, only 300. And that makes a lot of sense because these people understood this is the emperor of the empire that kills Christians, tortures Christians. And now they receive this invitation from Brother Constantine, who wants to come and have fellowship with them. Can you imagine how they must have felt when they're meeting together with him to discuss church doctrines? I mean, who's going to debate with him when he could instantly have them put to death? I mean, the whole thing is just beyond absurd to think that they're going to have a legitimate meeting to decide on the future of Christian doctrine. So the only one that had anything to gain from this was Constantine, because he put himself in the position that he wanted to be, in which all the Christians were now accountable to him as the head of the church. I mean, it was a downright devilish thing to do. Yet to this very day, the Roman Catholic Church claims that their kingdom, their empire, had a change of heart with the conversion of Constantine. And from that time on, they were a Christian empire. But if that was true, then there should be evidence of that even after the life of Constantine. But instead, what we see is the Roman emperors who followed after him continued to persecute and put to death the Christians. For example, 23 years after the death of Constantine, Julian became emperor, and he renounced Christianity and banned Christians from having any positions within the Roman government. And he made a concerted effort to unify paganism. And I want to read a paragraph from Fox's Book of the Martyrs regarding the events of the year 363, which was the year after Julian became emperor. So now this is 24 years after the life of Constantine. It says, in Palestine, many were burnt alive. Others were dragged by their feet through the streets naked until they expired. Some were scalded to death. Many were stoned. Great numbers had their brains beaten out with clubs. In Alexandria, Egypt, innumerable were the martyrs who suffered by the sword, by burning, by crucifixion, and by stoning. In Aruthusa, several were ripped open, and corn was put in their bellies so the swine were brought in to feed on the corn, which was in them. And in devouring the grain, they likewise devoured the entrails of the martyrs. And in Thrace, Emilianus was burned at the stake, and Domitius was murdered in a cave, whither he had fled for refuge. Now, that was during the reign of Julian, and I wish I could say that he was just uh, an odd man out, and that after him, uh, Rome behaved themselves. But that's not the case. The evidence shows persistent, continuing, ongoing murder of Christians and Jews. 
for hundreds of years. In fact, it has never stopped. It has continued to this day. And that's the whole point that I wanted to bring out, that this Roman Empire has been anti-Christ from the beginning and has continued all the way through. It is true that in the year 380, Emperor Theodosius issued what's called the Edict of Thessalonica, which made Christianity the state church of the Roman Empire. So yes, there was this uh, move made to put on a Christian face, but the evidence of their actions across many centuries afterwards shows that they never became Christians. And in the same way that they continued persecuting the Christians, they continued also persecuting the Jews, burning down their synagogues, exiling them from their nations, mass murdering them in many different places over many different years. But you know, to this very day, the Roman Catholic Church uh, puts forth this story that their empire converted to Christianity with the conversion of Constantine. Their whole story hinges on his testimony, which has all sorts of serious flaws in it. And they even commissioned an artist, Raphael, to paint his story on the walls of the Vatican. But by the time he painted that, it was 1,200 years after the life of Constantine. But they still keep it on the Vatican walls because they have to have this narrative. They have to have this conversion. They have to have something to show that they are who they claim to be. But even though they've got a beautiful painting telling the whole story right there on the walls of the Vatican, it doesn't make it true. And they have another story painted on the walls of the Vatican, and that is called The Donation of Constantine, in which supposedly Constantine deferred power on the Bishop of Rome at that time, who's known as Pope Sylvester I. And so there's this painting that shows Constantine deferring power uh, to the Pope, which he needed that for credibility, just like Constantine needed credibility with the bishops coming to his meeting for the Council of Nicaea. But did you know that this whole story about the donation of Constantine, even on Wikipedia today, it identifies it as a fraudulent, fabricated story that never happened? I mean, it's a historical, proven fact that it was a fraudulent document that told this story because Pope Stephen needed the credibility that would come from something like that. And so what we see is a consistent pattern of behavior by the Roman Catholic Church to give themselves credibility where they need credibility to pull off the claims that they're trying to make because they actually have no legal right, no real authority. So the only authority that they can come up with is false. It's all based on lies. Instead, what they've done is exactly what Constantine did. They took the Christian faith and paganized it. They just adopted Christian language to continue their pagan practices. So whereas they had always worshipped these 
pagan goddesses of fertility like Ishtar and Venus and Artemis and Demeter and Diana and all of those, they just continued the same story with Mary and baby Jesus. And whereas before the child was Horus, who is a type of the Antichrist, whose left eye is shown on the back of every United States dollar bill. It's called the all-seeing eye, the all-seeing eye of Horus. This is the child that they honor through their statues, um, through their adoration of Mary. And this is why they have so many uh, false teachings, unscriptural teachings, that try to exalt Mary to this godlike status. And so the Roman Catholic Church has just continued in the ways of Constantine in paganizing Christianity, not honoring the spirit of Christianity or believing the Word of God in any way, shape, or form, never repenting humbly before God, but instead continuing to do their way and follow their pagan gods. They did the same thing with the communion elements where Jesus instructed us to remember him as we partake of the bread and the wine. But what they've done is taking those elements and required their followers to believe in what they call transubstantiation, which means that the bread literally becomes the physical body of Jesus and the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus. And that is a ancient pagan practice where the priests would eat the flesh and drink the blood of their pagan god, Osiris. And it continued through the centuries. It was a very popular practice in the Roman Empire in a religion called Mithraism, where they worshipped the god Mithras. And they performed the exact same ritual. So they just took those same practices and now they've made it Christian. And there are many other examples of how they have paganized the Jewish and the Christian faith. For example, the calendar. They threw out the Hebrew calendar that God has referred to throughout the scriptures. Total disregard and total disrespect for his word. And they just replaced it with their own uh, Roman calendar, which we all live by today. And in that process, they Romanized the celebration dates for Christian holidays, such as Christmas. December 25th was a date that they honored their pagan god Mithras. And it was on that day that they would give gifts to one another to celebrate and honor Mithras. And so they just completely paganized the Lord's birthday. And they did the same thing with the celebration of the Lord's resurrection so that the focus is shifted to Easter bunnies and Easter eggs. And we call it Easter because it's named after the pagan goddess of fertility whose name is Ishtar. And just like Constantine, they place all the emphasis on physical objects in the visible realm and that's why they have this adoration for all sorts of religious relics, fragments of pieces of the wood that come from the cross, they claim. 
fragments of the bones of saints or holy water that comes from the holy land or rosary beads that you have to hold on to when you're praying or crucifixes that they place on the wall or statues of saints that they 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 keep in their possession little statues or large statues but these things are like idols and they're all in the physical realm because that's the way pagans operate and so what happened was by the year 476 the roman empire historians will tell us it came to an end but yet it did not come to an end because it was just the beginning of this new form of Rome operating as the papacy under the control of a new kind of emperor called the Pope, whose, whose uh, commands were just as mandatory as any command of the emperor's ever was. And the men who occupied this new office of Pope used the exact same title that the Roman emperors had used for many centuries, which is called the Pontifex Maximus, which is Latin, and it means the Great Bridge. And what it's referring to is they are calling themselves the Great Bridge between God and man, which is a complete blasphemous statement because the Bible tells us that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We do not need this great bridge, this self-appointed bridge. But by calling themselves the exact same name that the emperors used, it shows that the empire did not stop. And to this day, they call themselves by that title. Every pope calls himself Pontifex Maximus. And in the same way that the Roman emperors wore crowns on their head, so do the popes. They have these very ornate crowns that they wear in the tradition of Rome. And so all these things are just examples showing that this Roman kingdom is alive and well today. So contrary to what historians tell us, contrary to the popular narrative we've all been indoctrinated with for all of our life, the Roman Empire never went away. What happened was, over the next three centuries, the popes decreed what they call canon law, which is the law according to the church. And this canon law then replaced what had been Roman law. And so initially, the popes had limited influence, but they exercised their influence to try to bring, as Constantine did, to try to bring all the Christian churches under their control. And they used threats of excommunication for anyone who dared to defy them. And they used this same uh, role as the Pontifex Maximus to intimidate leaders of other nations and of other cities. And in this way, they gradually increased their influence and brought more and more areas into submission to their canon law. Until finally, by the year 800, 
they initiated what became known as the Holy Roman Empire, where the ruler of the empire had to be uh, crowned by the Pope. So that put the Pope at the ultimate pinnacle of all the world government with everyone else under him. So it was a genius idea on their part because they succeeded in exalting themselves to the highest place above all the thrones of the earth. So I think this is a good place to stop for today because this brings us to the start of the Holy Roman Empire, which lasted for about 1,000 years. And in tomorrow's program, I'll explain how the end of that empire marked a huge transformation in the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a pivotal point in history that directly impacts our lives today. And that's why I believe it's so vitally important that we understand what happened. Because even as that Holy Roman Empire was extremely dangerous to anybody who had a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what came out of it at the end was something far more dreadful, far more terrifying, something that perfectly matches the description given by the prophet Daniel when he described the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. So thanks for joining me today, and I hope to be back again soon with another program. Until then, so long. So long.